Well, welcome back, everybody, as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, last week, we covered chapter 10 and the second half of chapter 11. And this week, we go back to cover the first half of 11 and then chapter 12. Now, if that's confusing, you can go back to last week's teaching and, and uh, you'll understand why we skipped the first half of 11. But at any rate, we're going to pick up that part now, and then we'll go on into chapter 12. I call this teaching Living a Respectful Life. And, of course, it's going to be divided into two parts. And the first part, which comes from uh, chapter 11, is respect for tradition. And the uh, topic that Paul uses for this is the topic, the very controversial topic of head coverings. And then in chapter 12, we get into the issue of spiritual gifts. And I call this respect for the body of Messiah, of whom hopefully all of us are a part. And, um, and Paul talks about respecting your position in the body of Messiah and respecting the positions of others in the body of Messiah. So without further ado, let's just get right into chapter 11. And it should actually begin with verse 2. That's where I'm going to begin reading. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Messiah. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Messiah is God. Now, when Paul uses the term head here, he's referring not to the head like the neck up, but he's referring to the authority. And it goes on to say, every man, verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. He's using a play on words. He's saying a man should not pray or prophesy with his physical head uncovered because if he does, he dishonors his head, which is Messiah. Now, right there, we've got a problem. And it's a translation problem. Because, after all, in the Torah, it's commanded that the priest would have to wear a head covering. The high priest wore a turban, and it had a gold plate on the front that said, Holy unto the Lord. And all the other priests could not serve in the tabernacle or temple without wearing a cap. You can find these instructions in Exodus chapter 28. Verse 4 tells us how the high priest must wear a turban. And verse 40 tells us about how Aaron's sons, the priest, had to wear coats, sashes, and caps. And uh, without these garments, they could not minister. So what Paul's talking about here is not going to contradict the Torah. What we're going to find is that what it says in the Greek is he's not to pray or prophesy with something down over his head, like a veil. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which would be her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. This is, I love that phrase. Glory is something that emanates from something. Um, 
we talk about how the glory of God fills the earth. And if we have eyes to see it, and someday we all will, we'll see that from God emanates this glory like light. In fact, in the new heavens, new earth, we read about the new Jerusalem, and it says the glory of God. The glory of God is the light of the city. So it's saying that the woman is the glory of man. Her joy, her countenance, her peace, her confidence in life should be a reflection of her husband. And it goes back to what I often say. If I want to know how a man is as a husband, all I have to do is look at the wife because she will emanate and reflect uh, the love that he's giving her and the relationship that he is investing in her. Verse 8, for a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. You can't get along without each other. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the assemblies of God. What are we supposed to make of this? This is very confusing stuff. It has been a source of great contention and disagreement um, throughout uh, church history. And we see a number of denominations where it's required that women cover their heads and others where it's not required at all. What are we to make of this? The key to understand this passage is the first verse of the passage and the last verse. And Paul is telling us what the context of this passage is. Look again at verse 2. It says, Now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions. Paradosis is the word in Greek. The traditions, even as I delivered them to you. And then he goes into what he's describing is a tradition. Let's make sure we understand that. This is not a commandment that comes from the scriptures. This is a tradition that apparently the apostles of the first century established for the believing community. And Paul is now coming into Corinth, writing to Corinth, and establishing this as a tradition and a practice for the community of believers in the city of Corinth. And we can assume that this is the tradition he also taught in other places. We'll see in Thessalonica he did a similar thing. So then he goes on through chapter 11, and then when he gets to the end, at verse 16, he once again caps it in this way. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such custom. Sunatheia is the word in Greek, nor do the assemblies of God. So he's introduced two words. The word for traditions, paradosis, and the word for custom, sunatheia. We find these same two words in other places. Here they are. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, paradosis, that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And then in John 18.39, 
Pilate is speaking. He says, but you have a, a custom, a sudatheia, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So you, these two words are very similar. They're traditions. So he starts this passage with a word that means tradition, and he ends the passage with another word that means much the same thing, a custom, a tradition. And um, the point, the thrust of what Paul is saying here is this. When you come into a community, find out what the tradition is of that community, and provided it's not something immoral or something sinful, then follow the tradition. Don't rebel against the traditions of the community you find yourself in. And um, I've been in different communities, messianic communities in different parts of the world, and, and sometimes they have very different traditions from one another. I remember when I was traveling with my, my friend uh, Daniel Lancaster. We went to Kenya. And Daniel always has his head covered as a sign of respect to God, the Jewish tradition of covering the head. But we went to Kenya, and we were speaking among uh, churches there, Christian churches, there to wear a head covering for a man to cover his head in the assembly was kind of offensive. And so Daniel's very quick to take his hat off and never wear it when he was inside the building where that community met. He honored the tradition that was there. And this is something we need to learn to do, respect traditions. But to understand, to try to get a little understanding of this, you might call it a hairy problem, no pun intended, I have this hairy question mark. And so we can begin to understand some of the dynamics at play in this uh, really confusing mess of uh, women having their heads covered, men not covering their heads, and uh, the angels and shame and shaving the head, and what is this all about? Well, I don't claim to understand it all, and when you read commentaries and, and read up on the traditions in the first century, uh, it's still a bit confusing. But at least if I can tell you a little bit about why it's confusing, hopefully it'll be a little less confusing. So I have these four arrows pointing into this question about head coverings. And Let's start with the Roman tradition. Some of the people in Corinth, I'm sure, had been influenced by Roman tradition. Now, in Roman tradition, the pagan Romans, when they would worship, the men would cover their heads. But in Greek tradition, when the pagan Greeks would worship, the men would uncover their heads. So now you've got two conflicting traditions already, to cover the head or not to cover the head. But in both traditions, both Roman and Greek, married women went out in public with their heads covered. Uh, this was like the equivalent of a wedding ring. If you saw a woman in public, her head was covered, you assumed she was married. If her head was uncovered, you assumed she was single. And so if a woman who was married went out in public with her head uncovered, it would be like her advertising that she's single when she really isn't. And what's also interesting is that art historians have looked at uh, art from this period of time, and they found that the further east you go, the more the woman's head covering comes up on the head. And finally, when you get to the far east, it's an, an entire veil down over the face. 
So the further west, the less her head is covered. The further east, the more her head is covered, which I find very interesting. But in both cases as well, um, if a woman was caught in adultery, her head would be shaved. And so when Paul refers to a shaved head, he's saying this is shameful because that is a sign of an adulterous woman. And they did not want to be uh, considered that at all. Now, in addition to Roman tradition and Greek tradition, Paul starts bringing in Jewish tradition. But that's not as simple as it might seem. First of all, there are two Jewish traditions. Um, If you recall, um, Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon. They went into exile in Babylon, and they spent 70 years there. At the end of the 70 years, uh, King Cyrus gave permission for the Jews to go back to their land, to rebuild the walls and the temple, to rebuild the roads, and restore the city of Jerusalem. And this occurred under Ezra and Nehemiah, which we studied a few months ago in the fall. But surprisingly, only a small fraction of the population, the Jewish population in Babylon, actually went back to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem. The vast majority of the Jewish population remained in Babylon. They had good jobs. They had established businesses and families. They were accepted by the culture. Life was good. They stayed put. Which means that as you go through time and through the first century and on up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Babylonian population was unaffected by this. Um, Whereas the population of Jews in Israel were scattered. And uh, so you have these two populations and two sets of traditions growing up over a period of several centuries. Um, This is also why we have two Talmuds. We have a Jerusalem Talmud and we have a Babylonian Talmud. And the Babylonian Talmud is longer and considered more authoritative, but that's another story for another time. Now, Paul was not of the Babylonian Jewish population. He was of the Israeli Jewish population. And in Israeli tradition, from what we can tell, men did not cover their heads when they prayed. But in the Babylonian Jewish tradition, the men did. For whatever reason, the men would wear something on their heads when they prayed. And as I mentioned, um, in 70 AD, when the Israeli Jewish population went into the diaspora, into total exile, it was the Babylonian, the larger, more established Babylonian uh, Jewish population that really became the establishers of Jewish tradition up until today. And this is why Jewish men today cover their heads. They have a kippah on when they pray or bring the tallit up over their head at certain times. So, does this mean the Babylonian Jews are wrong in their tradition and Paul is right in his tradition? No. It simply means that since it was the council in Jerusalem that set the tone for the first century assemblies of believers, the tradition they established became the tradition that was accepted by these communities. And I'm sure that if Paul had been from the Babylonian Uh, population of Jews and uh, the council that oversaw the first century messianic congregations had been from Babylonia, 
they would have established a different tradition. You might say, well, wait a minute. It talks about angels. It talks about shame. It talks about these spiritual things. Um, Are those things wrong? Not at all. Every tradition should have some kind of spiritual picture it's painting. It should be grounded in illustrating and promoting some spiritual concept. And the concept that the tradition paints that Paul describes here is a tradition that we're under authority. It's the spiritual reality that we are under authority. Everyone's under authority. And, um, and so that is what is being discussed. Now, with all of that said, it could be very well, very well could be that even the men and, and Paul himself wore a kippah. Because, as I mentioned earlier, I just brushed over it, that when it says um, in verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, dishonors Messiah. There's one other thing here, as if there's not enough confusion already, and it is this. In some of the pagan religions, when men would worship a female deity the men would put a veil down over their face so as to appear feminine and to be more accepted by the female deity. And the Greek that is used here really doesn't mean to have his head covered or wear a hat, but to have something down over his head. The Greek that is used here is, a, is the same Greek word when it, discover, when it describes, I'm sorry, the, um, the herd of swine. Yeshua drove the demons into the swine, and they went down over the hill and into the sea. It's that same term. So what we see here is something's down over the face. <clears throat> and Paul says, men don't do that. So he may not be saying at all, you shouldn't wear a kippah. I don't think Paul would be that concerned with that. In fact, a kippah is also a picture that uh, you're under the fear of heaven, the yara melech, and that's where we get the word yomaka, the fear of heaven, and they're under the authority of God. So, have I resolved all the issues and the confusion here? Not at all. But hopefully you can see why it's confusing. And as you work through this, I hope you still hold on to this one foundational thing. Everything Paul describes in these verses we've read is tradition. And he applauds the Corinthians for embracing the traditions that he has established. Let's go on to one more passage. This also is in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition. There's that word again. The tradition which you receive from us. And remember, tradition is not Torah. Commandments are commandments. Traditions are traditions. But Paul is commanding the believers in Thessalonica to follow the traditions that he is sharing with them. Traditions help unite us as a people. And even at Beth Dekun, we have certain traditions established when we meet together corporately. Um, I remember many years ago, there was a, a man who had been coming for a while, and, 
and uh, a very intelligent man and uh, a student of the word, but he had not been in Messianic Judaism for very long. And uh, we asked him to share in a Torah service and to share a few thoughts. And uh, so before the service, I went up to him and, and said, now, now please make sure you have a kippa on and you have a tal- you're wearing a talit and we have them there for people to use. Because it's our tradition that when men are up on, in front and they're praying or they're reading from the Torah, so as not to give offense to Jewish brothers and sisters who come in and join us, we insist that a man wear a talit and a kippah. If you're sitting in the pews, no need. You, it's up to you what you do. But we do not want to offend Jewish visitors. And in Jewish tradition, it's offensive and confusing if a man is reading from the Torah or praying the prayers up front and his head is not covered and he's not wearing a tallit. So anyways, I asked this brother, you know, please put a tallit on and a kippah because he had always seen us wearing them up front. And uh, to make a long story short, he absolutely refused. And he refused based on his misunderstanding of this passage. And it's sad, but he, he never came back to Beth Tacoon again. And I've often thought of that, and um, that this tradition was so offensive to him. But anyways, there's no condemnation here. But um, we need to understand the traditions are traditions, and we should respect them in a community that we visit or should join. And Paul here even commands it. And so I hope that as we establish traditions and as families in our community follow certain traditions, that you won't argue with those traditions or try to buck those traditions, but you'll embrace them and uh, at least not criticize people for following them because these traditions are ornaments for the commandments. They're adornments for God's Torah and they're something we do in common that are beautiful. They enhance our experience and they help unite us as a people. And I also invite you to develop your own traditions in your own families. And I'm sure all of you do have your own traditions when it comes to birthdays or Thanksgiving and and other things you do throughout the year. Traditions help strengthen our bonds with one another. They're good and they're wholesome. So uh, let's treat them in the way we should. Traditions are not commandments, but they should be respected in a community. Okay? I'm sure right now, when we're all meeting live, there'll be a lot of hands up and questions and comments. So feel free to uh, email those to me, and maybe we'll take some time next, uh, in our next installment of our studies in 1 Corinthians to address a few of those. All right, let's go over to chapter 12. Chapter 12. It says, now concerning spiritual things. If your translation says spiritual gifts, the word gifts is not there. It appears a little bit later, but it's not there in the first verse. It's just spirituals. Now concerning spirituals, not the songs, but spiritual things. Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And yet, personally, I find people are extremely uninformed when it comes to spiritual things. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of God ever says, ever confesses, Yeshua is anathema. Yeshua is accursed. He is not to be followed. 
And no one can confess Yeshua is master except through the Holy Spirit. Now, let's get something straight. You can teach a parrot to say Yeshua is accursed or to say Yeshua is the master. Anybody can say the words. But what Paul is saying here, no one can proclaim it. He cannot take it from his heart and speak it forth from his heart unless God's spirit is there with him. Now, there are varieties of gifts. Now, there we find the word gifts. And the word for gifts is the word charisma. That's where we get the word charismatic. The Greek word charis is the word for grace. And a charisma is a product of grace. So when we see this word gifts, we have to understand that these gifts are products and manifestations of God's grace within us. They are gifts. Gifts is not a bad translation, but these are very unique and special gifts. So there are varieties of charisma, of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service or operations. Uh, I'm sorry, of service of, uh, of um, the word there is diaconion. That's where you get the word deacon. Uh, a deacon is one who serves. So there are various services but the same master, the same Lord. And there are varieties of operations in our gamma, where we get our word energy. There are various um, operations, uh, outworkings of God's spirit, but it's the same God who empowers them all and every one. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For no one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, I'm sorry, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faithfulness. Now, yours may say faith, but the word faith in Greek is generally and best translated faithfulness. We tend to think of faith as having the right opinion. If you think the way I do, then you have the same faith. No, that's just opinion. Faithfulness is living out what you believe. And some people are just really gifted in staying faithful when um, everything around them is trying to pull them down or pull them uh, off balance. To another, faithfulness by the same Spirit. To another, charisma, gifts of healing by this one Spirit. To another, the working of Now, your translation probably says miracles, and that may be a good translation, but it really just means works of power, whatever that might be, works of power. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of languages. To another, the interpretation of languages. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, which apportions to each one individually as he, as the Father wills. Now we're going to come back to this section, but let's read through the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter needs very little comment. It's very, very clear and plain and easy to understand, and it's beautiful, and we need to embrace it. So even though I'm not spending a lot of time on this next section, that does not mean it's not important. It just means you don't need me to help you understand it. Verse 12, For just as the, one, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Messiah. 
In other words, your body has eyes and ears and a nose and lips and hands and fingers and elbows and knees and, and, uh, and feet and toes. You have all these parts, not to mention all the internal organs. And it says, so also is Messiah, the body of Messiah. Messiah is not here. He told us before he left, it's imperative for you that I go away. But I won't leave you alone. I'll have my comforter here, my spirit be with you. But Messiah is not here. But the spirit that animated the body of Messiah is still here. And that same spirit works through all of us. And if we are united as one, we are the body of Messiah in the world. So that when people see us, they will know that we are his disciples because of our love for one another, which makes us one. When they see us, they should be seen a manifestation of Messiah himself in the world. Let's never forget that. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all immersed into one body. We're immersed into this body of Messiah made up of all believers. Jews or Greeks, or in other words, Jews and Gentiles, that covers everybody in the world. Slaves are free, that covers every strata of society in the world. And then we are all made to drink of one spirit. We're all filled and animated by the same spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, what we're going to see here are Satan's two tactics for making us ineffective. We've just seen the first tactic, and that is this. Well, because I'm not like so-and-so, I'm not really part of the body. Or because I can't teach, or I can't prophesy, or I don't speak in tongues, or... I'm not an administrator, and I, I can't do this and this and this other thing that all these people do. I must not be a part of the body of Messiah. That's his first tactic, to make you think that you're not a part when you are indeed a part. Here's a second tactic, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The second tactic of the enemy is when he tries to get one part of the body to tell another part, eh, you're not necessary. Both of these are, are absolutely wicked. The one is a lie I believe about myself. The other is a lie I believe about you. And God does not want us believing lies about anything. You are an important part of the body of Messiah. If you are a believer in Yeshua, a disciple of Yeshua, you're part of his body. You've got a job to do here on earth. So don't be looking around at other people and what they can do and say, oh, woe is me. I can't do what they do, so I just, I'm an outsider. No, not at all. That is totally contrary to what God has for you. 
But I think even worse is for you who might be an uppity-up in a community to look down your nose at others and say, I don't need you because, well, you're not doing the things that I think you should do or you're not doing them as well or you should be doing this and you're not, so you're probably not saved. That's a horrible and a wicked thing to do. But these are the enemy's two tactics and he uses them effectively. Don't let him get away with it with you. Verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with a greater modesty. What, uh, <laughs> what Paul's talking about here, are there certain parts of a, our body that we simply just never show in public? Or at least we shouldn't be. And yet when you think about it, those are probably some of the most very important parts of our body. We treat some of the most important parts with the greatest modesty. And uh, so you might be one of these parts of the body of Messiah which God uses in a powerful way, but it's not in a real open way that everybody can see. I tell you one of the most powerful parts of the body of Messiah are those who pray, who love to pray, who spend hours a day praying, and nobody knows it, nobody sees it. But God bless those people who, in their modesty, go into a place where they're totally alone and spend time in God's presence praying for us. Verse 24, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. All through here, and you should go through and circle all the places or underline the places where Paul emphasizes that the body parts are placed by God as he chooses to place them. And the gifts of the Spirit are given according to how God chooses to dispense them. He is the one in control. It's not up to you. It's not up to me what part of the body of Messiah we are or what our function is. It's up to him. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. Did you ever drop a brick on your toe? If you did, you know the whole body becomes concerned about that toe. When it's in pain, the whole body hurts. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you, and the word you in Greek there is plural. So now all of you are the body of Messiah and individually members of it. And God has appointed, God has appointed in the assembly, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. And once again, these are the, the dunamis. These are the, the people who do powerful things. Then gifts of healing, service or helping, administrating, and various kinds of languages. Verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work these powerful works, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with languages, do all interpret? Of course, the answer is no. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. We'll be talking about those higher gifts next time and in chapter 14. 
And the next verse is a segue into chapter 13, which we always call the love chapter. So, this is a, a section that's well worth meditating on from verses 12 to the end. But I want us to move back for the rest of our time here today to the opening verses. And we go to verse 4, where he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of operations, but is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. What Paul is doing here is he's referring to like a favorite theme of his, a favorite theme in the scriptures. And that is the fact that we are made up of spirit, soul, and body. Uh, I like using this illustration because it's very clear and easy to understand, but uh, the best diagram for the body, soul, and spirit is the tabernacle itself. The outer court is the body, the holy place is the soul, and the holy of holies is the spirit. And I often talk about this, and you can go look at older teachings for a fuller explanation. But in a nutshell, you and I are a soul. That's what you are. I'm a soul. And the scriptures call us souls. We are never called spirits. We never called bodies. We are called souls. The soul is made up of God's spirit being breathed into the body. God breathed into Adam's nostrils, which are made of the dust. He breathed in them his nasham of life, his spirit. Man, as a result, became a living soul. You are a soul. Our entire goal in life is for these two ovals to move closer to each other to where body, soul, and spirit become completely united and inseparable and you can't detect one from the other. And in the world to come, that's the way we will be. But right now, our body tends to pull one way and our spirit tends to pull another. And Paul describes this. He says, the, the spirit has strong lust, strong desires contrary to the flesh, and the flesh has strong desires contrary to the spirit. And, but if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust, the desires of the flesh. But the more the flesh goes one way and pulls away from spiritual things, the soul will shrink. I want my soul to grow. I want it to be stronger. I want it to be bigger. And, but every one of us, our souls are in the process of enlarging because the spirit is more influencing the flesh or they're in the process of shrinking because the flesh is being indulged at the cost of the spirit. These arrows coming on each side represent the five physical senses over here on the left, the five physical senses, and what I call the five spiritual senses which correspond. Again, that's a topic for another time. But let's go back to the soul. What is the soul made of? It's made of three things. Your mind, your, your thought life, who you are up in here when you think, your will, that's where your choices are made, and the one that's our biggest downfall, our emotions, how we feel about things. Now, earlier in Corinthians, Paul talked about the fleshly believer. The fleshly believer, he's motivated by what his body wants, like a little baby. 
The baby's not too concerned about the soul and spirit. He just wants fed when he wants fed. He wants to sleep when he wants to sleep and play when he wants to play. And if he's uncomfortable, he's going to let you know. It's completely fleshly. These are the babies and Messiah Paul talks about. But then he talks about the soulish man. And he says that the soulish man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're stupid to him. And unfortunately, most believers that you meet, if they're not fleshly, they're definitely going to be soulish. And all of us go through the stage. And it's always tragic when we never move past being a soulish believer. Because we are constantly led by the way we think and by our own opinions. We're controlled by what we want. And we're controlled about how we feel. And so when instructions come from God about a direction he wants us to go or something he wants us to do, we think, I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that because I'm afraid to do that. And I don't agree with that. So it doesn't get done. Being a soulish believer, you cannot walk in the Spirit. And the first job the first step in becoming someone spiritual is to realize you're soulish. Now, the soulish or the spiritual man, he does receive the things of God. And just as the soul, now get this, this is very important. A person who's soulish, he can look at the body and he can recognize he has physical drives that he should not give in to. A soulish believer will think, I feel lust right now, but I can't do that because that's contrary to God's will. A soulish believer can see his body and says, I want to eat more food right now, but I'm not going to because it's unhealthy or it's unbiblical food, unbiblical meat. The soul can look at the body and think, all right, I really just want to sleep the rest of the day, but I know God has things for me to do, and I know I need to go to work and be responsible. So the soul can look at the body and control it. The spiritual man, in the same way, can look at the soul and see it from a higher vantage point. So when he gets instruction from God, he can look at the soul and say, ah, that goes contrary to everything I think, but let's do it. He can look at a soul and say, I don't want to do that but my ways are boring. Let's go ahead and do it anyway and see what happens. When God gives him instruction, he can look at his emotions and say, I'm afraid to do that. Let's move forward and do it anyway. So just as the soulless person can look at his body and deny it, the spiritual person can look at his soul and deny it. We need to be spiritual people because a spiritual person can freely receive and know the things that are given to him by God or to her by God. Let's grow up to become spiritual people. That is what the world needs. Now, why am I going to all of this? Because what does Paul say? He says there are diversities or varieties of gifts. So let's put the word gifts here. Oh, I'm sorry. We're going to start on the right-hand side. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And then he says, there are varieties of service. We'll go over to the left-hand side. 
but the same Lord, the same master. And who is that master? That is Yeshua. And then there are diversities or varieties of operations. But the same God. And he says more about this. It is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. In other words, it's God who does these, and it's God who also gives these. Okay? Body, soul, spirit. We have the Master Yeshua, God, and the Spirit. But everything emanates from God. Just as you are a soul, and you have a spirit, you have a body, God is God. He manifests in the physical world through Yeshua, and we who are the body of Messiah now, and he animates us as he animated the body of Yeshua through his spirit. And so Paul gives us three different lists of how God operates directly in our souls, through our spirits, and also to the body of Messiah. So as we look at these columns, let's keep in mind that the left column are the body gifts, as we're going to see. I just call them the body gifts. They're gifts to the body of Messiah. And the middle one are the soul gifts. I like to call them the motivational gifts. This is a a term that I did not come up with, but uh, someone else did. I wish I knew who. But um, the motivational gifts are the gifts that are part of your soul. You are one of these seven things. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, which we've already read and we'll look at quickly again, we have the nine, what we call the, the charismas, the, the, the spiritual gifts. Most people think of nine spiritual gifts, but that's just part of the picture. I want us to have a a fuller picture. What we're going to do is start with the middle. Since we are souls, let's start with these motivational gifts that align with that middle section of who we are, the mind, the will, and the emotions of our soul, and correspond to God himself, who is the God who sends his spirit to animate us in the body of Messiah, and he's the one who sent his son in the flesh, Yeshua. We find this list over in Romans 12, verses 6 to 8. And it says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And here they are. First is prophecy. Prophecy in proportion to our faith. Next is service. In our serving. The one who teaches, I'll put teacher here, in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortations, we have the exhorter. I think that's probably an O-R, seven E-R, so forgive me if I've spelled that wrong. The one who imparts, or the giver, and with generosity, 
And then the one who leads, in other words, the one who administrates. This is one gift I do not have. The administrator with zeal and the one who acts, uh, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I remember the day that a dear friend of mine who lives in Chicago sat down with me in his home and shared these with me, and it's been a life-changing thing for me, and I, I think it will for you as well. And I've gone over these in the past, and so this may be repetitive for some of you, but hopefully it's a good review. And as my friend, my, his name is Bill, went through and described these to me, he, he says, each one of us is one of these things. It is what motivates us in the depths of our soul. And he said, just like uh, when you pull up a turnip or a carrot, there's a tap root. There's this one massive root. But off to the side, you'll see sometimes little roots coming out the side. And he says, all of us have all of these to some degree, but there's one of them that truly identifies our soul. With that said, Yeshua had all seven in perfect balance, but you and I, uh, not so fortunate. And he says the person who's got the prophecy kind of soul sees everything in black or white, just like a prophet does. Everything is good or it's horrible. There is no gray area. This person um, can get in your face and tell you what's what and read you the riot act and be very stern. But when you repent and change, they will be all over you. They will love you. They'll forgive you. They'll forget everything you did. Everything's completely on or completely off, hot or cold, black or white. And uh, there's no gray area with these people. Have you met any people like this? And what I'm going to do is now skip down to the last one. Because the mercy person is exactly the opposite. With a mercy person, there is no black, there is no white. Everything is gray, shades of gray. And um, this person doesn't just identify with another person's sufferings or shortcomings. They feel their pain. They feel their, their, their suffering. And, um, and just as the prophecy person has a shortcoming, and that is that they can be very harsh, and they can't see gray areas, the mercy person has a shortcoming. They can't see black or white, and they're easily manipulated by their feelings. You find this gift of mercy more in females than in males. Not exclusively, but it is tipped a little more heavily to females. And girls, you need to be on the guard against this, because a girl who is a mercy person can be easily manipulated and led astray by some guy. And uh, he can play on her emotions, manipulate her. And she'll think, oh, he's got good in him. And I think if, if I marry him, I can, I can really help him become a good person. Nonsense. You need more of what the prophecy person, <laughs> what makes them tick. And the prophecy person definitely needs more mercy. They balance each other out. And I believe this is why God inspired Paul to put them on opposite ends of this menorah. The service person is like the muscle in the body of Messiah. Uh, their problem, they don't know how to say no. <laughs> and, and you know if you ask a, uh, someone who's got the, uh, the gift of service, 
they'll do it and they'll do it well and they'll do it diligently and without these people it wouldn't get done. This is the most common gift in the body of Messiah and it's the most necessary. We need the muscle of the people who are servants. But we need somebody to organize them and that's the administrator. The problem with the administrator, I mean, he loves to formulate a plan. He loves to make lists. I never make lists. I hate making lists. But he loves lists. He loves checking off the boxes that gets done. The problem, though, is that an administrator is so goal-oriented, he can just railroad and steamroll somebody who gets in the way, squash right over him, destroy him, but he's off to get the goal accomplished, and he leaves a wake of dead bodies, dead servants in his wake, so to speak. So uh, the administrator needs to be very sensitive of the people who serve and really be watching and serve them and to make sure they're not doing too many things and, and help to alleviate their burdens. But we need administrators. One of the problems I find often in uh, churches is that they hire an administrator to be their pastor. And that's always a mistake. But that's another story. Then you got the teacher, who just loves to teach. He loves to learn, loves to teach. Tends to be very long-winded, uh, so I've heard. But uh, he loves to study, loves to learn, and loves to give what he's learned to others. Uh, nothing trips his trigger more than seeing the eyes of people light up when dots connect in their minds. But sometimes he's not very practical, whereas the giver is always practical. The person with the gift of being a giver may not always see the insights in the word when they read, and they, uh, theology they might study, but they find it kind of uninteresting, but they're always generous. They're always giving, giving, giving. You need something, they'll give it. And the giver, no matter how much they give, they always have more because they're like a pipe and God just keeps giving them more to, to give to people. And uh, the, givers are wonderful. Teachers give from, from the neck up and givers give from the neck down. And, uh, but the teacher needs to learn more, to be more practical in giving. The giver needs to learn, to, you need to study as well. But the exhorter in the middle, he's all by himself. You don't find many of these. You don't need many of these. But the exhorter is the person who makes all the other six just hum along and enjoy and love what they're doing. Uh, this is the person, I always say, that when you have a group doing something in the community, they can be doing it okay, but the moment the exhorter walks into the room, everybody's spirits just lift, their attitudes improve, the joy just um, comes to the surface, and they pitch in, and they get her done. And uh, the exhorter is, is really a, a wonderful gift for a community to have. The problem with the exhorter is, is though they're never down, they're never depressed. When they do get depressed, they are really depressed. And it's almost impossible to get them out of that. So if you have an exhorter, take care of your exhorter. And of course, you can see how these form a menorah, can't you? These are the soul gifts. And as you go over this very brief, short uh, description I give you, there's probably one of these, as I described it, lit you up. You said, that's me. That's, that's who I am.
And you need to be aware of which one you are and then look at which one balances you out and begin to practice that balancing trait so that you are going to be especially good at what you do. Those are the soul gifts. You are born with one of these. Some people I know are born with two. They are really blessed. But for most of us, there's one of these, and that's who we are. It's what makes us tick. It's what, makes, what drives us and fulfills us. But we need all seven because it's like a menorah, and uh, with all seven, there's really light that goes forth from a community. We can do the body gifts very quickly. They're over in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you go to Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 14, this is what it says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. I like to use the word proclaimers because an evangelist is one who proclaims the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. He's a gospelizer. And the shepherd teacher. Shepherd teacher should be hyphenated because these roles go together. A shepherd teacher. Now, what did he give them for? To equip the called out ones for the work of service, for the building up of the what? The body of Messiah. These are gifts. These are gifts of people. Gifts of people. Each of these people is a gift that God gives to the body, to the assembly, to your church, your community. And um, though apostles are a very, very rare thing in the world these days, I believe that as we progress into the last days, we may see apostles come on the arise. There are a lot of false apostles out there. I'm sure there are a few real ones. There are a few more prophets in the world, but again, there are a lot of frauds, a lot of fakes. Be careful of them. Test them to make sure a prophet is truly a prophet. But I do believe in the last days, we will be seeing more prophets. In fact, in Revelation, we see the two prophets come. And um, boy, do they make, make trouble for the Antichrist. Proclaimers, we've always had proclaimers. We'll have more. And then shepherd teachers, these are the ones who, in each community, if you don't have a shepherd teacher, uh, there's going to be real difficulty. But Paul puts this up here, number one, number two, number three, number four. These are gifts to the body of Messiah for the building up of the body of Messiah until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Messiah. God is in the process of building the body of Messiah and making a bride without spot or wrinkle. And we're all in this process of coming to completion. And in these end days, the body of Messiah will eventually reach completion. Every living stone will finally be complete, put together, and wow, will it be something to see so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So, those are the body gifts. So let's finish where we started with 1 Corinthians 12, 4-11. We've seen, we started with the operations, but the same God. These are the gifts that are the soul gifts, the motivational gifts. Then we looked at the diversities of service, but the same master, Yeshua. 
And we call these the body gifts. These are gifts of people to the communities. And then last of all, we have the diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. And Paul calls these the spiritual gifts. And there are nine of them listed here in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11. And I'm going to go from the Greek so we can understand, hopefully, a little bit better what, uh, what these mean. The first one is word of wisdom. Word of wisdom. It's logos sophia. Word of wisdom. Sophia, the girl's name, means wisdom. Logos means word, word of wisdom. And you know where you find these? Counselors. You got a good counselor community? We are really blessed at Beth the Coon to have some wonderful counselors. And I, I don't like counseling. I'm not that good at it. Robin is much better at it than I am. And, uh, but when I'm with a counselor and I hear how they give counsel to people, it's like, how did they come up with that? How did they see that? How do they know to say that particular thing to that person? Word of wisdom. People who are practitioners of words of wisdom will usually find themselves in the role of counselor and be a very gifted one. The next one is logos gnosis, a word of gnosis, a word of knowledge. These are people who just kind of can figure things out. And I think you you especially find these with people who are very skilled in applications of the Word of God. You can ask them a question about the Scriptures, and it may be something they've never even really thought about before. But with them, it's just like the knowledge just pops up. And an insight will come, and they'll share it with you like they thought about it their whole lives. And um, they are just a, a wealth. They're a, a spring of spiritual insight. So uh, a word of knowledge. And, um, but sometimes people can just know things. At the risk of going over a bit, um, an example that always comes to my mind is uh, the first time I went to Kenya. And um, when I was there, I uh, did a week of teachings at, at a school and with pastors. And, and then I was invited to go to a church in a, a town uh, several miles away. And um, so I was teaching there. And while I was teaching, it was a dirt floor. There were chickens running around, but there were people there. And while I was teaching, a drunk demon-possessed man came through the large door just to my right, just maybe 20 feet away, if that, maybe 15 feet away. And he came at me with a machete over his, over his head. He's getting ready to part my hair with it. And he was mumbling something. He was completely demon-possessed. And, uh, at that moment, the pastor, who looked like a, a professional fullback, he was a huge guy. He just grappled him right to the ground, and he and another guy hauled him out. And, um, and it was so amazing because you'd think I'd be terrified. Under normal circumstances, I would, but there was no fear there. It's like God had me in the place he wanted me to be, and I've experienced what I've heard other people share when they were in a place of, of danger. And it's like there was just total peace. So we prayed for the man and just picked up and re- went right on with the teaching. Well, 
a few days later, I got to talk to Robin on the phone, and um, and she said, uh, are you do okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Why? She said, I got a call in the middle of the night from our friend Bonnie, about 3 a.m. I should say, Bonnie was woken up in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m., and she dreamed that she saw somebody coming after me with a big knife. So she got out of bed and knelt down and prayed for me. And the next morning, she called Robin and asked her, is Gran okay? And, and, uh, and that's when she shared with Robin this dream. Well, we, 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 we calculated and realized it was exactly at the same moment that this guy was coming after me with a machete, that Bonnie had this word of knowledge that I needed prayer. And... Um, and there are a lot of examples of this and the scriptures and the, the testimonies of people. And uh, it's amazing that God gives this gift to people. So anyways, we need to move on. The next one is pistis, pistis, which is the gift of faithfulness. These are the folks that have this gift when other people get a little wobbly in what they believe or they were gung-ho and now things are not going so well, they can come along and really encourage them. And they can just believe God for things that are unbelievable and watch them come to pass. The fourth one is charisma yama. Charisma yama, which is, and this is the only one of the nine where the word charisma, gift, is actually used. Gifts of healing. Now, this is interesting. It doesn't just, doesn't just say healing, the gift of healing, but gifts of healing. We have a number of doctors in our congregation. They may not be miracle workers where they can lay their hands on you and all of a sudden you're healed, but they have gifts of healing. And God can heal our bodies in a number of different ways. It might be that instead of just healing us, he rather teaches how to eat better. Instead of just working a miracle, maybe he wants to teach us, learn to rest and be a good steward of your body. And it could be he wants to allow us to go through some suffering because he wants us to be a testimony to someone else. But healing can take a lot of different forms. So when you read this, don't think just miracles of healing, and we have seen those on occasion, but uh, all forms of healing. And uh, so... Uh, broaden your understanding of this one a little bit. And then the fifth one, works of power. Yours may say miracles, but it's works of power, which would certainly include miracles. But maybe God just gives you the ability to accomplish something mighty, whether people see it and recognize it as miraculous or not. In Greek, it's in ergama dunamis, like energy dynamite. <laughs> so uh, that's what you can think of, works of power. And then there's propheteia, which is prophecy. I'm going to pause here just for a second as we close. I want you to notice something. You'll notice that prophecy, and I'll go to a different color here, is in all three lists. You have prophets here that are part of the body gifts. There's the prophet that God can give to a community or to a bunch of communities. And then over here, the motivational gifts, prophecy is the first one listed. Then here in the spiritual gifts, we also see prophecy. Let's understand something. These are not all the same thing. 
The one on the left is the office of a prophet, one who is a genuine, qualified, certified, card-carrying prophet that God has established. It's a person who occupies that position as prophet. The second list is a motivational gift. It's the spirit of the prophet. You may never actually prophesy, but you've got that spirit of a prophet where everything's black or white. Uh, there's no gray area. And you're, you can be a fire breather at one, one point, and you're, you're speaking uh, correction to somebody. And then you can just be sweet as honey the next moment. And you can embrace them and welcome them back to the fold because they've repented. But over here is the actual gift of to occasionally prophesy. And prophesy, to prophesy does not mean to foresee the future. Can include that. But when you look at the prophets in the Tanakh, only a, f- a portion, a small portion of what they write and speak has to do with foretelling the future. It almost all has to do with speaking to the now, bringing correction to people, speaking God's mind to people, to forth speak what God wants. Uh, the Hebrew word for prophet is navi, and it means to gush. It means to gush forth. And it's like, um, it's like a, uh, a fire hose. It's going to put the water right where it's needed. And this is the gift of prophecy. All right, let's finish up, and I'll go back to my original color, and we'll bring this to a close. I'm not going back to my original color. The, the marker is. So anyways, the seventh gift is diacresis numa. Diacresis. Diacresis means to judge to judge or to discern pneuma, discern spirits. This is an extremely important gift for anyone to have who is in ministry. It's a gift that moms often have, especially when it comes to their kids. But this means a person who can see the the charm and the facial expressions. You know, charm is deceitful. And they can hear all the words and everything is being said, but there's a part in their spirit that connects with that person's spirit and sees what they're truly made of. And one who has discerning of spirits is not easily deceived. And there are a lot of deceiving people out there, a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing. You need people to have the gift to discern spirits, to recognize a wolf, no matter how much like a sheep it may look. And then there's glossa, glossa, or just languages. This is where we get our word glossary. And it's unfortunate they just translate this as tongues, because glossa means a tongue, but the word tongues, both in Hebrew and in Greek, refers to languages. So let's call it what it is. Some people have a facility for languages. And there are many examples of where people learned to speak a language that they'd never learned to speak. Um, Another quick story, dear friends of ours from Beth Coon who now live in Tennessee, uh, George and Maria. I forget it was his mother or her mother, but this Jewish couple, one of them, their mother, who only spoke Russian, spoke no English, was living with them, a Jewish lady, about 90 years old. And uh, George and Maria decided they were going to go to a meeting where some speaker was speaking. And uh, mom said, well, I want to go with you. And they said, well, mom, it's all in English. You don't know English. And uh, they're 
excommunicating her in Russia, of course, but she said, I want to go. So they took her. And they sat through the entire teaching, sermon, whatever it was, and uh, at the end, the man invited people who wanted to come and dedicate their lives to Messiah to come forward. And, and their elderly mother gets up, and they said, Mom, where are you going? She says, I want to give my life to Yeshua. But Mom, how do you know that's what he's asking for? She said, I understood every word he was saying. And, uh, and she gave her life to the Lord that day. And she lived for a few more years, died in her mid-90s, but she died a believer, a fulfilled Jew, uh, a believer in Yeshua, the Messiah. And I've heard many stories since from very reliable sources where people can simply understand a language that they shouldn't be able to understand. Of all the gifts uh, of these nine, this gift of tongues is the most confusing. And all of chapter 14 is about this one gift. But then tongues do tend to be pretty confusing. I mean, just look at the Tower of Babel after all. But we'll spend more time on this one when we get to chapter 14. And then our last one was this uh, Ermenea Glossa. Ermenea means, it's where we got our word hermeneutics to understand and break down. And this is the ability to translate or to, we'll just put interpretation. The gift of interpretation. So maybe this is actually the, the gift that the, uh, the elderly Jewish lady had. She heard and understood a, uh, a language she should not have been able to understand. But there are other places where people have been able to speak a language they should not be able to speak. So um, these are two important gifts, especially for people out in the mission field. And there are many stories of people in the mission field where they did not normally understand a language or be able to speak a language, and God supernaturally reversed the confusion of Babel and allowed them to communicate and to understand. I hope that uh, this teaching has helped bring some clarity, and I hope you'll always keep these three sets of gifts in mind because Paul's trying to be very distinct here to talk about the diversities of service and of operations and of gifts because he wants us to understand the body, the soul, and the spirit, even as it applies to the body of Messiah. So, I hope this has been helpful to you. We're going to close in prayer, and uh, then I'll see you next time as we get into chapter 13. Our Father and King, thank you so much for your word, for the clarity it brings to our lives, for helping us to understand things that would typically be impossible to understand. So, Father, help us to know ourselves, to know what gifts you've given us. Help us never to deny that you have given us gifts. And even more importantly, let us never deny that you've given gifts to each brother and sister around us. Help us to operate according to the function you've assigned us, to be the person you want us to be. And let us never be presumptuous to occupy an office that we have not been called to and ordained to. But again, Father, help us to grow up into full stature. And help us always to exercise the gift you've given us with great humility and great skill. Because it's not about us. It's about you. It's about others and about your community, your bride. So may we be found faithful servants in your service, service to our King, 
in whose name we pray. Amen.